This is a relay project. Seriously starts now. Here's Sapria and Ryan. Hey, hey, it's Wednesday, September 21st, and you're listening to Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. I'm Sapria DeVetti in Toronto. I'm Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton. My friend, how you doing? I'm okay, but there's a a lot going on. We uh, sort of woke up to news on this side of the world that uh, I guess Putin is ramping things up, uh, mobilizing 300,000 troops. Um, and threatening nukes. Yeah. Again. World War Three. Here we go. So what's the X factor here? Is it whether or not China's got his back? And if China does, then the world better buckle up. And if China doesn't, then uh, this is just a big bluff, despite the fact that he says he's not bluffing. Well, I mean, I don't think anybody really has his back anymore. You know, the, the allies that he did have... Um, China being one of them, uh, Kazakhstan being another, um, you know, even uh, Prime Minister from India, Narendra Modi, said that, like, you know, basically warned him uh, not to go at this or not to continue to go at this. So it's like they're increasingly Russia, that is, is becoming a bit of a rogue state here um, and isn't really finding very many international friends on this front. No wonder people are talking about it, though. This is something that, of, of course, as we speak, you know, we do this show Wednesday into the Thursday, the Friday. People are going to be asking world leaders for their response. And I think we know what it's going to be. It's 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 going to be that steadfastness that there has been since the very beginning of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. But no matter which way you slice it, uh, especially considering developments in Ukraine over the past month or so, I don't think this ends well for Putin. No, uh, I don't think so either. Um, and maybe a news? whole bunch of other people, too. Well, uh, yeah, um, there's been a, a whole lot of. Uh, you know, developments on just the other news front as well, aside from <laughs> the threat of nuclear war. Um, you know, the House is back in session. Um, the conservatives, uh, at least from one abacus poll, are seeing a little bit of a bump, um, a little bit of that, you know, Pierre Polyev um, honeymoon, which is which is interesting. Um, and can you fill me in on what's going on with the Oilers? And uh, oh, you're talking about Jake for Tannen? Yeah. Yeah, this is uh for people that don't know, Jake Vertanen was a was a high draft pick of the Vancouver Canucks back in the day, sixth overall. Um, you know, lauded to be a goal scorer. There were rumblings that that, you know, I mean, rumors that he was a bad teammate, that he was a bit of a toxic player, that he was disliked by a lot of the players on the team. And then of course, charges uh, essentially that he sexually assaulted, that he raped somebody. In 2017, he took about a month to respond to that, maintained his innocence, was acquitted at trial, but uh, still uh, exiled from the National Hockey League, if you will, the Vancouver Canucks buying him out. He played in Russia last year. The Oilers have signed him to a, a PTO, like a professional tryout contract. So he'll be auditioning to make the team um, quite likely at a discounted rate, obviously yeah. all circumstances considered. But Oilers fans, and I think hockey fans in particular, are quite frankly, Sapria pissed off about this. Uh, you know, you'll remember last year the Oilers brought in Evander Kane as well. He had yeah. allegations swirling around him. Now, again, uh, these were unproven allegations, and and I'm not jumping to the defense of either player at all. 
But but let's just recognize what we're talking about here and the facts of the matter. Optically, though, it's a tough look for the team. And a lot of the talk within Oilers Nation, as they call it, Oilers fans, um, in particular, but not limited to female fans, um, there's a lot of disappointment with the team in extending this opportunity to Jake for Tannen. A lot of Oilers fans just don't want it. And then there's just the straight-up hockey fans that say, listen, if we can get him at a discounted rate, if he can score goals for us on the third line, if he can help us get into the Stanley Cup final and maybe win a cup with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, then then it's all worth it. Of course, with the Hockey Canada stuff swirling around yeah. now as well, and Bob Nicholson presiding over Hockey Canada at the time of a lot of that. Now, of course, Bob Nicholson right at the top of the chain with Oilers Entertainment Group. There's a lot of reason for for a lot of Oilers fans to to have a, a kind of a gnarly taste in their mouth around the team right now. Look, yeah, I mean, if I was one, I also would have a gnarly taste in my mouth. Um... Yeah, but it's but you know what I want to say is is like it, it demonstrates that. To some people, like it's the same sort of a thing. Well, it's not the same thing, but but may I for a second? It's like you know, do you still listen to Michael Jackson's music or not? Do you watch Roman Polanski's films or not? For some, I mean, ho- you know, for some yeah. hockey fans, this is a big deal. For some hockey fans, this is a non-issue. Well, I mean, okay, fine. If we're going there, I mean, Michael Jackson's also dead, right? So I think that's also a little bit different, um, just in terms of enjoying his music. I don't really, I've never been able to listen to him the same way. I mean, I certainly Me have wiped R. Kelly off of all of my Absolutely. playlists. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're not wrong when like there is this sort of general discourse out there, um, and that a lot of fans, irrespective of the sport, right. Um, because this happens in the NFL as well and other leagues, um, don't really care, uh, what the, uh, charges or allegations are, um, and in some cases, even convictions are against, um, their player, as long as it gets their team a win, um, which is, I don't know, in my books, a little bit unfortunate, um, if not a whole lot unfortunate, but that is what it, it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's <clears throat> optically, it's a tough look on the team. Right. And and for the fan base too, like, I think it's probably safe to say they're not going to sell a lot of Jake for and Oilers jerseys, <laughs> uh, but you never know if he scores a hat trick in his first game, that might change for some people. What do you make of uh, this new, that, that abacus poll you mentioned <clears throat> that shows a bump for the, the conservatives. If you don't have one after a leadership race, if you don't see a little jump in the polls, a little bump in interest or support after a leadership race, it's been a total failure. So so early on, this is probably predictable that some people's interest would be peaked. But as you've pointed out in past, now Pierre Polyev's job is to keep that momentum and keep building it for the next two years. And that could be a tall order, but it all depends as well on the leader that he's criticizing, the prime minister, and we'll be talking about him. Yeah, well, look, he had a really great showing in the house yesterday, right? It was his, uh, it was the first day back. And I mean, those new inflation numbers were out and inflation did slow slightly, right, which is mainly due to lower gas prices, but things are still very bad, right, especially if you're considering food prices. So the food prices are up 10.8%, uh, which is like the highest um, that increases happened since like 1981. So, you know, before I was even alive, and it's, you uh, if it's going to be very rough for Canadians writ large. And if Pierre Polyev and the conservatives are able to stick on the affordability issue and able to really hammer the liberals as seeming as though they're out of touch and don't really care about the plight of average Canadians and their grocery bills and, you know, 
uh, parents having to make the choice of, well, do we get the kids fresh fruit this week or do we make sure that they have enough, you know, um, eggs and dairy or something, then it's, it, it'll be very bad. It'll, the liberals will be in a bad place. And I think that the conservatives can, uh, you know, maintain some of what they've been able to do in the last uh, little bit. Real quick, before we get on to talking about the liberals and their leader leaning against a piano, channeling his inner Freddie Mercury, real quick, uh, the subject of a popular podcast serial uh, released from prison after serving more than 20 years uh, convicted of homicide. This is a remarkable story. We have to mention this. Yeah, we do. And um, the judge did overturn the conviction, orders a new trial. Anybody who listened to Serial at the time obviously has very strong opinions as to whether or not he did it. But I think this just goes to show the major flaws within the justice system and not just the U.S. justice system, but ours as well, in which you often have uh, once there is a conviction, um, the system in it, like as a whole is very reticent to admit that they've made mistakes, even as new evidence presents itself. And that's incredibly unfortunate because, you know, Mr. Syed is obviously not alone um, in this. Um, he just, you know, because of the attention that he garnered, um, his case is uh, is a little bit of an outlier right now. Yeah. Speaking of law enforcement, just a short time ago, we saw a pretty wild story uh, that focused on, and at least the headlines, I think, grabbed a lot of people's attention, fraudulent credentials in police training. Uh, as it turns out, several experts who were training police on crisis intervention, things like PTSD response, obviously very relevant these days, other critical issues, actually had false credentials from what they call degree mills. So in the last month alone, we've heard about nurses, healthcare aides, and now cops with fake credentials. The problem of degree mills and fraudulent credentials has been on the rise in recent years. So if you're a regulator or an association or a licensing body, it's more important now than ever before to provide trustworthy training. And if you provide any type of online training, you know you need a trusted training partner to help you prevent fraud before it happens. And that's why we wanna tell you about We Know Training. With over 20 years of industry experience, We Know Training is the one-stop solution partner that enables associations, regulators, and nonprofits worldwide to develop, deliver, and monetize training that matters. With in-house customer support, e-learning development, proprietary LMS, and marketing, let We Know Training handle your online training and content needs so you and your team can get back to doing what you and your organization do best. You know, sure, a plug-and-play LMS software may be what you're used to, but imagine what your organization can actually do with the right support. You'll be in great company with success stories from We Know Training partners like the Liquor and Cannabis Regulatory Branch of British Columbia, the Alberta Hunter Education Instructors Association, and the College of Midwives of Ontario. And you know, We Know Training can help you reach a larger audience, monetize your training program, create impactful courses hassle-free, that's big, and deliver top-tier training to generate reoccurring revenue. As a fully managed solution partner, We Know Training handles every step along the way. They make online learning engaging, fun, and your learners will actually retain and apply the information in the real world. So if you're looking for a partner who will provide high stakes training without the stress, give We Know Training a call. You can find all their contact information and learn more about what they do on their website, weknowtraining.ca. The lead.
So I feel like uh, everyone has probably heard or seen that video uh, already of, uh, you know, the prime minister in a hotel lobby singing along to Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I don't know. This has sparked all sorts of fervor on the interwebs. Um, people are angry about it or people are fervently sort of defending the prime minister. Uh, my own view is that it doesn't really matter one way or another. I feel like we've all turned into the town from Footloose where we are clutching our pearls at the notion of this or, uh, you know, trying to make this into something bigger than it is. But I, I, I don't know, like the way it was first reported, there was also it also wasn't accurate. Right. I mean, they presented it was initially presented as though this was the night before uh, the Queen's funeral, which it wasn't. It was on the Saturday. I don't know if that matters one way or another, but it clearly matters to some people. So, I mean, let me ask you, Ryan, where do you come down on uh, to sing or not to sing? Well, it doesn't really matter <laughs> to me, to me. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I, To be honest with you, I think people that are pissed off at it aren't really pissed off at it, if they're being honest with you. They just can't stand Justin Trudeau. They, they can't stand that he that people were gathered around admiring his singing. They can't stand that he's tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, they can't stand that he knows all the lyrics, presumably without checking his phone. And if Justin Trudeau were not to sing, then they'd probably criticize him for that too. Uh, I know that people were reporting some outlets that uh, Brits were outraged. I don't believe that either. Probably some Brits were outraged, but I think this is much ado about nothing. One of the promises we make to people here on Seriously is that we'll find the fresh angles and we'll cut through the noise. And I would love to ask you as a native Quebecer to talk to yeah. us a little bit more about who is tickling the ivories, about who is playing the piano, because that's been an under-discussed element of the story that I think is probably pretty relevant. Yeah, he's like a Quebec legend, Gregory Charles, right? And I mean, this is really interesting, the way that English Canada has reacted to this, because they almost sort of papered over the fact that you have this legendary um, actor, musician, director, like he does it all at the piano. And basically that dude gets behind a piano and starts playing. You best better start singing because like uh, nobody's going to pass that up. And I feel like this has flown over the heads of, of many folks who have been commenting here. And I, I think it, it represents a little bit of that, you know, two solitudes, uh, if you'll allow me to use that phrase, because there, it doesn't seem to be the same level of outrage in Quebec as there is in the rest of the country. And I, I suspect part of it has to do with the fact that, you know, everyone in Quebec recognized who was playing that piano versus uh, the rest of the country. And, you know, you mentioned that there people would be pissed off no matter what with respect to the prime minister singing. And I wonder if part of this was because there were too many people on the anti-Trudeau side of things that were already kind of hopped up on the, you know, that that meme that was going around. Trudeau says I'm, I'm an extremist, right? Or like slash racist, misogynist or whatever that, you know, they were using. Yeah, I'm, a, then, I'm a 31 year old cat mother of six. And, and <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. 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 Um, and then too many of the, you know, very partisan pro Trudeau people out there were already had their backs up against the wall because on the weekend, the Globe and Mail put out uh, a Twitter thread and one of the tweets said, 
unlike the tens of thousands of people joining the eight kilometer queue along the river mm. Thames, uh, Mr. Trudeau used a special VIP entrance to pay his respects to Queen Elizabeth. So like they were already going to go super defensive. And I just think that people were ginned up um, from, from the get go. And, you know, the video certainly didn't help anything. Yeah, but the, this, this is the same criticism and, and pick your politician. I mean, for whatever reason, folks don't seem to go after the American presidents that they justify, you know, like Air Force One and the Secret Service everywhere in the limousine convoys. And nobody seems to criticize that, maybe because a few of them have been assassinated. But you look at other world leaders and, and people will say he flew private to their family vacation or he used the special VIP entrance. And I just think it's such a, a ridiculous and disingenuous criticism of global leaders. Now, of, of course, Jason Kenney probably pushed this narrative along, standing about 11 hours in line himself alone to pay his respects to Her Majesty. And that's perfectly fine. Premier Kenny can do whatever he likes, uh, but... You know, I, I guess he is a premier, though. Like, I don't know. Like, do, do, like don't like nobody sure, in that fine. line. Put it this way. Nobody in the line knows who the hell Jason Kenny is. Fair. Everybody in that line would know who Justin Trudeau is. Yes. And you yeah. would and it would be irresponsible and disruptive and ridiculous for a recognizable G7 leader to be standing in line to pay their respects to the queen. It just wouldn't happen. Also, and, and I, this may come across as like I'm an apologist, but tell me what's wrong about what I'm saying. Tell me what's inaccurate or incorrect. Justin Trudeau first met Queen Elizabeth II when he was like three. Uh, he, he's known her literally his entire life. He is the child of a former Canadian prime minister. There was reportedly somewhat of a special or even a little bit personal relationship that the two shared. And I don't know, may, maybe he views this as a bit of a different story. The Canadian yeah, delegation was singing around that hotel yeah. piano for reportedly two hours. You know, why isn't everybody pissed off at everybody else that was involved? Well, let me flip this around on you then a little bit, because, you know, to your point, um, our prime minister is a bit of a celeb, right? He's grown up in the limelight. Um, he certainly, I would expect, recognizes and knows the fact that he is identifiable by the masses. Um, so should he have expected to have been filmed in public, um, in, in a public spot like that in the hotel lobby, because this is another criticism that has, uh, you know, been leveled at him should be, shouldn't he have known better? Shouldn't he have known that he was going to be filmed and that people were then going to be subsequently outraged by the singing and the, uh, you know, the general jovialness? Yeah. I mean, I know, I know that the majority of our seriously subscribers are going to be listening to this on the podcast, but for those of us that are checking this out on YouTube, if you and I are chatting or if you're chatting with somebody else and I'm in the hotel bar here and it looks right now, like I'm texting on my phone, right? looks like yeah, maybe I'm, I'm checking my Facebook, maybe I'm checking my Twitter, but I'm aimed right at you. I could be videoing you on a five times or a 10 times zoom through my camera. Maybe I'm not even, maybe I'm looking at my screen. Maybe I'm looking over here. You have no idea. Had the PMO or Justin Trudeau from his Twitter account or his Instagram released the video that Saturday night, I think it would have been in poor taste, especially, I mean, I think it would have been politically inconvenient for him considering some of the other criticisms around what you could describe as international gaffes. I mean, the trip to India wearing the, the traditional garb is one example that immediately comes to mind. The guy's in a hotel bar for a couple of hours with the Canadian delegation and somebody gets him from across the room for 10 seconds singing here. I'm, I'm not sure I buy that it was intended to be offensive or that anybody should take it that way. 
I know, but you just raised a very creepy aspect of all this that we should basically always be aware of the fact that we're when we're in a public place anyway, are you know, we can be very filmable. I don't know. That's that's like mass surveillance. I don't I don't care for that as a general principle. Yeah. You and me both. Also, there's this. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. That's pretty definitive from the president of the United States of America. The pandemic is over. I, yeah, I, okay. That's an interesting, you know, uh, declaration to make. I mean, COVID is still the third highest killer in the States, um, you know, after cancer and, and heart disease. And if that is the new normal, okay, fine. That's the new normal. But then say that. Say that it's going to be normal for 400 to 500 ish Americans to die every day of this thing. Like just every be day, str- every day, every day, like just be straight with people instead of like downright, you know, denying it or downplaying it uh, because I don't think that's going to help anything. And then if you think of the fact that in the States, um, booster uptake is only about at like a third of the population. Um, and we know that boosters continue to help um, from severe outcomes like hospitalization and death, even if they're not the best at curbing uh, transmission to the degree that which we had initially hoped, particularly with these set of uh, Omicron variants. Um, do you think declaring the pandemic as being officially over is going to help get those booster rates up? Um, I, I don't know. Like it's 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 very problematic. And then you consider the fact that there is, you know, some data out there right now um, that's pointing to being vaccinated tends to reduce your likelihood of developing long COVID. Um, how are you going to prevent more people from getting long COVID? Because long COVID is already estimated at costing the U.S. Um, quite a bit. Uh, I have, you know, stats in front of me around 16 million working age Americans. So those that are aged between 18 and 65 have long COVID today. Out of those, two to four million of them are out of work due to long COVID. And the annual cost of those lost wages is around $170 billion a year. And it could be potentially as high as $230 billion. And all that data is from the Brookings Institution. You know, I was talking to a healthcare worker the other day, and, and I want to be clear, they were not talking about quality of care or commitment to care. But I asked them, I said, have things stabilized in your ICU, in your ER? Have things stabilized in, in your hospital, which is one of the largest in Western Canada? And she says to me, you know, people are still getting excellent care, COVID patients. She says there's still an entire COVID ward. She said, but I think that the mindset has shifted and you can see around the hospital, just even with the scuttlebutt at the nurse's station or what the doctors are talking about. She says the vast majority of COVID patients in hospital right now are ones who are unvaccinated. And she said, and we can't help but see them almost like the drunk drivers that come in on stretchers from the ambulance. Like oh. you did this to yourself. That's it really tough hit me. to hear. Yeah, that's that really hit me, too. Um, I, that's incredibly unfortunate um, for a bunch of reasons. But. I, the primary one, I think, is that this was completely preventable in, in those cases. And, and I, I wonder what happened to those people to have fallen down the sort of anti-vax rabbit hole um, or to be so, you know, vehemently opposed to getting vaccinated for 
something that would keep you out of the hospital and keep you from dying. Um, I wonder if maybe like one of their heroes was banging a message home. It's possible. Seriously? So, I mean, Ryan, that was a perfect uh, segue here. Uh, for those that are watching on YouTube, we've got a tweet up by Jamie Saleh, and it's a uh, quote tweeting a very obvious fake tweet from the prime minister. Let me read out what Jamie said. Nice try at Justin Trudeau. Your lies and manipulation aren't working anymore. You've been censoring Canadians who go against your tyrannical gov for way too long. It's game over. And the fake tweet that she's quoting says, it has come to my attention that hashtag Trudeau must go has been trending for more than 24 hours. This is nothing more than the work of Putin and CPC in an effort to discredit me. This is precisely why our government has committed to regulating and censoring Canadian online content. I don't even know where to start, but as you mentioned, uh, you know, Ryan, before getting into this about somebody's hero uh, promoting this sort of thing, I don't think it's any sort of secret that Jamie Saleh once upon a time was like, I don't know, Canada's sweetheart, right? Um, very well regarded uh, across the country and has fallen into a lot of this uh, conspiracy theory, disinformation peddling, anti-vax nonsense. And it's just like, what happened? Yeah, I, I mean, the her Twitter account is a hot mess. She's paired up with, like, Sapria, honestly, literally, my favorite hockey player as a kid, Theron Fleury, who's even deeper. I don't even know. It, it's a race to the bottom between those two. I don't know who's deeper down the rabbit hole, but they're, they've actually partnered up on this new truth initiative. You know what? I mean, there's a few things about number one. If you ever see a head of state uh, talking about their plan to censor content, that's a red flag immediately. Or if, that they're or that they're weighing in on some dumb hashtag like they don't have the time to do that. It's right. Not, it's not. It's so obviously not real. It's so obviously fake that it has some people wondering if she knows it, if she's crazy like a fox, if she's using <laughs> this to further her own narrative and build her own business. You know what really concerns me, Sapria, is that her tweet has at the time we're talking more than 13,000 likes. She's certainly not alone here. And that's maybe the most troubling part for me. Yeah. And look, the other troubling aspect of this is that we know that the government is going to be um, putting forward legislation in terms of like online harms or online safety. Right. Uh, with the focus uh, being kids and how to protect kids online. And other jurisdictions have done this. The EU has done this. Um, you know, the UK is in the throes of uh, their online safety bill. So democratic governments around the world are doing this because our kids are not okay. And I don't know about you, but I have all sorts of issues with huge social media companies um, targeting uh, nine-year-old girls with like appetite suppressants or targeting 13-year-old boys with like bodybuilding enhancements. Um, and I think we should have some sort of oversight for that sort of thing. And in terms of how this conversation is going to go, I think the tweet by Jamie um, just sort of gave us a little bit of a preview and it's going to be a fucking shit show. And that's terrible. Yeah, especially with words like treason being used. And we've seen yeah. that word used and invoked a lot over the last year and a half. It's why it's important everybody tells their friends about seriously, because we'll cut through the noise on this stuff. You know, if the federal government introduces any legislation around online content, most people, as tragic as it is, 
aren't going to pay attention to the details. They're not going to look into it. They're not going to endeavor to understand what it's about, what it addresses, and why it's you know arguably necessary or not. That's the point of question period. It's the point of what the official opposition does. And you hope that those conversations, that those debates are held in good faith. Hey, before we go, before we run out of time, another flare up in our home province of Alberta. It's sort of along the same lines. Casey Maddu right now is still a government minister. He's the minister of labor in Alberta. He was the justice minister through a large part of the pandemic. You may remember, Sapria, he was relieved of that post because he (laughs) called Edmonton's police chief. To try to get off a traffic ticket, a, a distracted driving ticket. I mean, this guy's political acumen, his his gut instinct uh, leaves you wanting. Well, check this out. He, he's just a short time ago uh, in addressing that Canada will ease vaccine border requirements. The Arrive Can app will become optional in short order, says Alberta's former justice minister in a public post from his verified account. Quote, it was never about science, but about political control and power. Thanks to all those citizens, freedom convoys who had the courage to mobilize against these tyrannical policies. This guy was the justice minister at the time. He goes on to say they endured a lot of hate, name calling, suffered and vilified on behalf of all of us. I thank them. A couple quick hits. Uh, number one, the provincial restrictions were stronger than the federal ones. So what does 100%. he have to say about that? Number two, he's calling people, himself a tyrant. He's calling himself a tyrant. And maybe he wants to be one. Maybe he's reading the room of who may be becoming Alberta's next premier and he wants to stay in cabinet. Uh, this individual I'm talking about, Danielle Smith, has taken a pretty strong stance on COVID restrictions and a whole bunch of other things around the pandemic. Uh, it's disingenuous. It's dangerous. But for a guy that's been shameless throughout his entire political career, no surprise. And that's it for us on this week's episode of Seriously. As always, you can connect with us on Instagram at SeriouslyPod, on Twitter at Supriya and Ryan, and make sure to check out our website, SeriouslyPod.com. And if you know somebody that just has to check the show out, we thank you for sharing it. If you're listening to the podcast right now on the app, just click share and then spread it around. It's that easy. We'll see you again next Wednesday right here on Seriously. Seriously is hosted by Supriya Dwivedi and Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Norlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Voiceover by me, Tanji. Seriously is a relay project. For more, check out SeriouslyPod.com.